Hello, folks. We are live. Welcome to episode 3107 of the Survival Podcast. It's Friday, so it's time for an episode of Outback with Jack. Got 10 bullet points for you. I'm going to go pretty quick on some of them. We'll go a little more deep into some others. Uh, this will be the last live stream for two weeks. It will be the last new podcast for two weeks. I do have some bad-ass rewinds coming for you guys over the next two weeks. I'm not actually out of here on uh, uh, Monday next week. Uh, I'm not leaving till midweek, but I have interviews, uh, some pretty cool interviews. I'll send out uh, a communique, all right, uh, maybe over the weekend or on Monday morning about those two interviews that are coming up. But they will not be TSP episodes, just so you know. And when I say badass rewinds, I mean it. Next week is kind of lighthearted stuff, but I have some stuff stacked into the second week of rewinds. I got one that goes all the way back to 2009, and it is incredibly prophetic um, when it comes to the situation we're in right now. Uh, it was an episode called Recovery Means Inflation, and again, it's from 2009. That'll come Thursday next week. And uh, so cool stuff coming. And speaking of prophetic, John Willis from Original SOE Tactical Gear is in the house, got him up on the screen on the live stream right now with his comments saying, morning, um, it's prophetic because my uh, interviews next week include uh, my roundtable with uh, John and Nicole on Tuesday. So those will happen next week. I'm not telling you who the other one is. It's on Monday, and it's a really big deal, and you'll have to wait to find out. All right, before we dig into today's topics, I want to go ahead and share with you our sponsor today. It's uh, Paul Wheaton's. PaulWheatonsPermies.com. If you have never been to Permies.com, I thought it would be a good day uh, before I'm out of here just to let you know about all the cool stuff that you can find at Permies.com. The forums, the marketplace, all this stuff is free, right? Rocket Mass Heaters, uh, Skittable Structures, Keeping Chicken eBook, Rocket Mass Heater Plans, Solar Station. This is all free, and there's more free stuff there. All of Paul's podcasts. This is like the hub of everything Paul Wheaton. Articles on DE, that's Dimitatious Earth. Well, Foddy, Sepp Holzer's coolest stuff on the planet. Organic lawn care. I mean, you see how much cool stuff is here. You can learn about Skip and building a better backyard. And you can learn about the jamboree that's going on uh, this summer, which I'm totally jealous that I can't be part of. And I've already heard from some of you guys that are going to be there. So if you have never gone to permies.com, get on over there. And this is something I'd like to throw out, like kind of a hat tip to Paul. Everybody and their mother's on some form of social media now, even people that say, I'm not on social media, and then they're on YouTube, right? It's a form of social media. There is, like, it was the social media explosion was the death of the original old school online forums. And there's still forums that are active. Paul's permies.com forums are probably the only growing, I mean, at a significant rate, growing forums online today. Some people don't like some of the rules that Paul has, but there's a reason that he has, like, a forum built on architecture from, like, the year 2000. I mean, it's been updated and all, don't get me wrong, but, I mean, really, like, this is, like, 1999-2000 tech, and it's still growing in a world where everybody's on Facebook and YouTube and Snapchat and 
uh, TikTok, and all that other crap. So check it out and check out all the cool free stuff he has. With that, um, before I jump into this, this is something that just happened last night, and I wanted to share this with you. Um, I'm just wondering if anybody maybe might sleuth out what's going on here. This was interesting to me. So last night I bought a little bit of Bitcoin, and I mean a little bit. So this is not this is not my address. That's the, kind of the point. But I went on strike and I bought a bit of Bitcoin, and um, it was like a hundred bucks worth, right? Just was like, yeah, it's down again. I'll buy some more. So whenever I buy Bitcoin, the first thing I do is transfer it. As soon as the transaction clears, which is almost instantaneously on strike, I then say, okay, I want it in my own wallet. Screw off. I do not hodl on exchange. So every once in a while, not every time, but quite often, once the transaction clears my wallet, I'm like, I wonder what the deal is with the address it was sent from since it came from Strike or Coinbase or CoinX or whoever. And usually when I go there, I'll find that they have a balance. It's, you know, like 50, 100, a few hundred Bitcoin. And in this case, they had 600 Bitcoin. That's not that odd that an exchange, because Strike is an exchange, right, would have 600 Bitcoin in, as a balance. That's a lot, but Coinbase, you know, you see it. Usually it's 50, 40, something like that. And they have multiple addresses that they're they're doing business from. The bigger deal here, for those on the live stream, you can see this, total receipt. That's not dollars, That's Bitcoin. It's, that's 14 million Bitcoin have been received and about 14 million have been sent. Now, if you're going, well, there's only like 18 million Bitcoin in circulation. That in itself is not a problem. Um, this is an exchange, obviously. So an exchange can process, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of Bitcoin a day. And it's the same Bitcoin moving back and forth and changing hands or going into stables and back in or into shit coins and back in. But for Strike to have sent from this address, let me be blunt, Strike's not been around long enough to do it, to have that kind of volume. I don't, and I guarantee you an address with this much activity on it and 600 Bitcoin balance, you know, with chain analysis and all, somebody knows what address this is. When you see things like whale alert saying X amount was moved off Coinbase, that's because they know addresses that Coinbase is operating from. What's the interesting thing to me? I, I think all of you should watch Jack Mahler's full presentation from the Bitcoin 2022 conference in Miami. I finally took the time and watched it. I showed you guys a little snippet of it where he bought some Coca-Cola and stuff with, uh, with, with an app, you know, at a store that received dollars. The whole thing is amazing. It explains the entire history of payment networks where the diners club card became, you know, master charge and visa and where this all came from and how it's all a boomer network. It hasn't changed in 70 years. And now he has this new network. Well, when you, you see this, it's not only inspirational, you realize that Jack Maulers is not content to become a millionaire or a billionaire only. Jack Maulers is trying to completely change the world and completely redefine what a global payment system looks like. So that's a guy who has to swing for the fences. So my guess here, some major partnership is going on to push liquidity through Strike because, again, Strike just hasn't been long, around long enough to have an address that has transacted over 14 million Bitcoin. Again, not holding, 600 holding. Most of what's gone in has gone back out. This is a trading address. This is a major exchange. But whoever sleuths out, and it's on my Twitter, Um, 
you can, you know, see it there. You can get the uh, address if you wanted to. Uh, but if it's on my Twitter and somebody somewhere knows what address that is, and it would be interesting to see what, what back ends have overlapped. I just, I thought I'd share that with you today. I didn't have it on the agenda. I didn't plan on doing it, but it's just interesting, right? And remember, if you have questions for me, go ahead and put them in all caps and we will try to hit you at the end. I just thought that was interesting. And K-Box says, Jack and Jack interviewed him. I have hit Jack Maulers up like a bunch of times. I've hit Mike Saylor up a bunch of times. Uh, I, I guess I don't rate that big in the Bitcoin world to get those names on. But it does look like I will be bringing on Natalie Burnell is uh, one of the first interviews for the Bitcoin breakout when that starts in July. So moving on, uh, this was an interesting question. A guy has been listening a long time, truck driver, finally saved up enough money to get his ass out of the city, moves to a rural property in Arizona. Very excited to get going, not like... Not like uh, northern Arizona where it's all cool and beautiful and mountains either, like hot part, like think Phoenix, Tucson, Arizona type weather. It says, I just got my property, man. What do I do? I want to start a garden and all, but it seems pointless right now. And my response was, your instincts, sir, are correct. And I did answer this guy by email already, but I thought it would be a good topic for a lot of you because a lot of people – Summer is moving season, right? That's when people move because the kids are out of school. The kids have completed school if you're not homeschooling. Even if you're homeschooling, it's not as much of a disruption if you give your kids a summer break. Um, it's just a, it's a big time for moving. And this is an audience who I've been telling, get out, get out, get out, get out of the city. We have more on that later for quite a long time now. And, uh, well, you know, I'm sure this is, this is going to come up. And I've even seen this like being a topic Right now, just seeing certain videos showing up on YouTube addressing this question. So I guess this is the thing. I think if you're right now on a new property, or even if right now you decide, yeah, Jack's right, we should have a garden and we should plant some stuff, and you live in a hot southern climate, you shouldn't even think about planting right now. Do not even think about planting right now. Let me say it one more time. If you live in a hot, sweltering southern climate, sunbelt state, and you have nothing growing, do not put your seeds in the ground right now. You might as well put them in the garbage disposal. So what I told this guy, this is what I would advise anybody in this situation to do. What you should do is you should build your beds, build your infrastructure. I wouldn't even get chickens right now. Because you're, you know, you're probably going to get chicks, right? Now, if you have a neighbor that has some chickens and they're adapted and you get your infrastructure in and you just move a chicken from one place to another, that's fine. But I wouldn't buy chicks in the southern states right now and start raising them. I would, whatever it is you want to do, I would figure that out. And I would start building the, which is always what you should do anyway. You should always build the infrastructure first. So, What do we say in permaculture? The problem is the solution. So the problem is I really can't grow anything right now because you have to treat midsummer many ways in the south the way that people in the north treat midwinter. So you kind of have to treat July, June, July, and August like December, January, and February, right? 
in that anything you grow has to have already been established and must be protected or must be heavily protected, i.e. indoors. So I said, if you want to do anything, I build an indoor hydro system right now. Or I would build an outdoor hydro system with somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 70% shade because the water will keep the roots cool. And, you know, if you're going to do hydro, then you're going to grow leaf crops and leaf crops will be fine with that much shade. And that's the only thing I would do right now. And even if you want, like, I want to do aquaponics. Okay, then I would do hydro with a big enough reservoir or with the intent to expand it later because I don't want to put in an aquaponics system in these climates right now. So if you are in the Sun Belt, you are now seeing temperatures on a daily basis in the high 90s. You know the hundreds are coming. This is the time, like like Alan's saying here, build up beds, lay the compost. And the beauty of that is then you can start, you know, go to almanac.com, figure out, your first frost date, count backwards, and and go to the survivalpodcast.com, look up any episode with fall gardening in the title, just use a search box, and start planning your fall gardening. What you'll find is that you'll probably be doing some starts uh, for the southern states in, like, August to September. You'll be doing some indoor, under-the-grow light starts or something like that, and planning that fall garden with short-duration cold-weather crops. And then you'll probably have a great entry into gardening. Because fall gardening's great. So that's my advice for any of you guys there. And then we have, what do we have? We have, oh, we have a spammer on, uh, on Twitch. Get them guys. I've got some guys over there that, that get rid of those guys. Anyway, um, next, I want to talk about wicking beds for a minute. I got a question on wicking beds and the guy said, Hey, Jack, you always recommend that you take your wicking beds and you put a bulkhead in it for your overflow. And I found this great tub and it's a pretty big tub. Um, they're about this, they're, they're a little, I think they're like 70 gallons. They're very similar to the 100 gallon rubber maze, but they're not the insulated foam. They're just a real heavy duty, uh, plastic. They sell them at a lot of the, uh, the stores and what have you, like, like tractor supply and what have you. If you saw one, you'd be like, oh, one of those. And he said, can I just put a, a hole in the side at the level that I want the water to overflow and maybe throw like a uniseal or something in there and a little piece of pipe stick out the way everybody does it on, on YouTube. First of all, the one that he had has a bulkhead in it. It's just a pretty small diameter bulkhead uh, way at the bottom. It's a, it's a brass fitting that you can take out, but it's pretty small. And maybe, maybe it might be a problem being that small. Maybe it wouldn't. I don't know, but you, you could, Put a fitting in there and use it as your bulkhead. I think what he was trying to avoid was having a pipe on the outside of the container, which is what I recommend that you do. You, you can do whatever you want. Okay, you can you can do a penetration at the level. You have to have an overflow point, though. If you don't, what's going to happen? Certainly, you're going to get a rain event, and when there's no place for the excess to overflow out, you're going to flood your bed out. And you're going to drown your plants, which, again, we talked about, like, in your off-season, you can actually do that intentionally and kill all your weeds. That's one of the reasons I recommend an overflow, because you can cap or recommend a bulkhead penetration for an overflow, you can cap it. But the other thing that you can do that you'll really give up if you don't do a bulkhead is the ability to change the height of the water. Uh, where do you hold the water? So 
I just mentioned, like I talked about in my show on Wicking Beds recently, what you can do is, okay, we're going into winter. It's not going to freeze yet, but or it's we're coming into spring, so the freezes, the heavy freezes are gone. You can basically cap your overflow pipe, fill your water level all the way to the surface, and let it sit there for like four or five days, and you've done the rice paddy technique. That's why they do this with rice. They flood the rice paddy. The rice can handle it. The weeds die off. So you can basically cause all your weeds to germinate and rot, and then you can drain it back down. If you have good soil, you're going to have your aerobic conditions come back quick. Give it a good kick of organic fertilizer, and you can plant into it. You don't have to do that every season, but there's other things you can do. Let's say that you're going to grow uh, something that's a direct sow in one of your wicking beds, like uh, carrot, something that needs a little bit of light hitting it, and you need to stay moist, or lettuce and leaf crops early in your season. Well, if you have that external pipe, all you can, all you have to do is take a piece of uh, a collar, you know, a, a coupler, and stick it on there, and that a piece of pipe, and you can then bring that water level up to where the surface stays moist. And once those seeds sprout, you can pull that pipe out, put a little smaller piece of scrap pipe in there, and you can slowly drain down the level that you hold your wicking level at. And then once the plants have roots, you can go to your regular level. All of this is difficult without a bulkhead. It's the only way I know to easily do it. I guess you could do multiple penetrations with some sort of cap. But to me, the flexibility of that, and I, I guess what this person is worried about is just the appearance. Remember, you can facade anything in, make it look however you want. And generally, you have a back of, of anything from the main focal point. So you can always create your orientation to where... Your external penetration is to the rear. Just if you do that, don't put it really tied up against a wall or anything like that. Always leave yourself um, some working space. I've learned over the years with all my aquatic systems, wicking beds, aquaponics, whatever amount of working space you need around your plumbing, whatever in your head you think you need, double it, and then maybe add another 10%, right? Like you will never be like, gee, I wish I had less working space for all this stuff, Uh I promise you. Uh, next, um, somebody asked about contour beds, and they asked about using a plow for it. So when we talk about contour beds, for those that are new to this discussion for your gardens, you have a slope, and what most people will then do is it doesn't matter what direction that slope is. They look at their house or their fence or their neighbor's house or something or some structure, and then you – Align your garden with that structure. So if you look at your back fence and your back fence goes this, you know, straight across, so you're looking at it left to right in orientation, but you have a slope that goes left to right in orientation. People put their gardens in on a slope, which is a bad idea. It creates erosion problems that are more difficult to work, et cetera. And people generally don't do this on a steep slope because it's so obvious not to, they realize I better not do that, right? But on a mild slope, they tend to do this, and it creates problems. So what I always recommend is whenever possible, if you have any slope, let's say greater than, certainly greater than 2%, don't worry about lining your garden up with your fence. Worry about your solar aspect, workability of your garden, and contour. And there's a really easy way to do this, and it's basically making mini swales is what you're doing. And so this guy wanted to know if you can do it with a plow. You can absolutely do it with a plow. We've done it with plows. 
And so what you really want to do then is you mark your contour lines using a laser level or a transit level or an A-frame level. And you can look all that stuff up on YouTube if you don't know what that is. But basically, you, you mark a level line. And then you take your plow and you just you want to make sure you you take the approach so that when you when you plow the soil and you leave your piece that flops over, that it flops over to the downgrade side. And then you can clean it up. You know, you get a couple guys over, give them some beers and some hose and rakes, and you build your beds that way. You can do small swales with a plow. Uh, you can do uh, contour beds with a plow. There's other ways to do it manually, though. So here's an example of one way we did it on one project. We had a lot of trees that were, you know, being felled. Um, and we took some of them and we just simply cut them as logs and we laid the logs on contour. And of course, on your uphill side, this is a significant slope on your uphill side, you had a big hole on the back side of the, so you have your slope going up and then you have kind of this empty space where it comes up against the log. And all we did was have people take shovels, right? And go in and dig one shovel full of dirt up and flip it over into that empty space up against the log on the downgrade side of the log, or on the upgrade side of the log. And it made a perfect path. And then that was what you planted into. And we actually made double the double of those that we wanted beds. So for every one bed, there were two log systems built. And what that did is when you you had your bed, and then you had your other bed downgrade from it, and then right in the center between those two beds, you had a level path to walk on. So you can do that. Basically, you can do anything that works for you. But again, leave yourself space for your solar aspect so your plants aren't shading each other out and so that you can work comfortably between them. So it's, uh, there's like this trophy hunter mindset today in gardening. I want, because everybody saw Dervais' videos back in, in the early 2000s, I want as many pounds of production per square foot as possible. No, what you want is... Enough food to feed yourself your, and your family and maybe your neighbors. And you want to work easy. And you want to not do too much work. You're not a, Unless you're a farmer farming for market, that's insanity trying to do that. There's no reason to do that. You're going to end up feeding your chickens half your food if you do that. You're going to end up composting food if you do that. Give yourself space so you can work. And on those slopes, that's what to do is to build that contour path that you can walk on and work And you can work one one bed up and one bed down. A great tool for doing contour beds, micro swales, all of this work is a tool that I generally, when not used for these things, despise. The rototiller. The rototiller is one of the greatest tools for hand-dug swales and contour beds there is because it loosens everything up so that you're digging easy dirt. How do you do that? Mark your contour line for the, the length you want. Mark the width that you want to excavate. And then take your rototiller and just till along the line and come back and keep going until you until you till up the width. And when you shovel it out, you'll get an almost perfectly flat path, like something you could pour a sidewalk into. And that's what you want with your contour is you want flat and wide. When we Even when we do big swales, there's this misconception. It's because... When you draw things in a class on a board, you exaggerate your, your artwork so the student understands the concept. And that can be a bad thing when you try to take artwork into the field. So when we do a big swale, nine foot wide, 
it still looks very flat. Now, it's fairly deep in reality. Like you, when you walk down into it, you are significantly below grade. But the slope is actually very gentle in that. And you want, in a nine-foot swell, you probably want three foot of it dead flat in the center at least. So you're coming up, gentle angles on both sides, and then you have this nice flat contour in the center. That lets water pacify when it infiltrates into your swells. And you just take that into miniature when you're doing contour beds. Moving on, uh, have a screen share on this one for those that are watching the video or are in the live feed. And it is a question on crypto. And we're not going to go deep into crypto other than a question about accepting it and kind of what I think is the best tool for accepting crypto on a WordPress-based website. Uh, it is called Cryptocurrency Checkout. This question came in on MeWe. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the philosophy of accepting crypto and a place that I think a lot of people kind of mess up when it comes to accepting crypto or they hear an announcement some from somebody like Chipotle and it's like Chipotle now accepts Dogecoin, Dogecoin, whatever. Um, that does not mean the company accepting that currency sees any value in that currency at all other than a means of exchange. I guarantee you that Chipotle does not have Dogecoin, Doggy Coin, Shiba Inu Coin, whatever, Shitcoin XYZ on their balance sheet. The way they see it is, well, we have young people who Shitcoin and they want to uh, pay us with this crap. And this crap turns into dollars because other stupid people will buy it. And we could do that almost instantaneously. So we'll take anything at all that people want to spend as long as it turns into dollars. And there's even a lot of companies that do that with kind of what I consider the gold standard of cryptocurrency, um, Bitcoin. I call it orange washing. You know, there's green washing in environmentalism. There's orange washing in Bitcoin. We accept Bitcoin, and they don't have any interest in Bitcoin. They just know it's fungible, and they can turn it into dollars. I don't think that's all in a dumb decision for a business. So this is called uh, Cryptocurrency Checkout, and the reason I, I recommend this if you're running a WordPress website and you have an online shopping site where people can buy things. This person, their, their wife sells photography stuff. Um, it, you buy it, you own it, it's yours. You drop your own addresses in for the coins you take, and if you look down here, you can see all the coins that they take, all the shit coins as well as the good ones, and specifically Bitcoin right there. Uh, they take Monero and they take R, and those are kind of the two that I see some real value in outside of Bitcoin at this point in my life. Uh, they even take ARC, which I've recommended in the past, um, but they take everything. And this is what I think you should do if you own a website and you sell stuff. If you hate cryptocurrency, it's okay to orange wash. You should take cryptocurrency. And you should get, but if, if you do this, you're going to end up like liking at least Bitcoin. But you should get an account where you can exchange cryptocurrency into dollars and dollars into cryptocurrency and specifically Bitcoin. And it wouldn't be a bad idea to have more than one account if you're in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency um, because at times certain exchanges, <coughs> Coinbase, um, will have excessive volume and they may accidentally fuck up their own front end so that they can halt trading, and then you want to buy the dip, or you want to do a conversion, or you want to get your shit off an exchange, and you can't. 
And so you might set up a second account at some place like CoinEx, which trades all the shit coins. And then you might be a Bitcoin maximalist or you might be a dollar maximalist. You are whatever you want to be. And then if somebody wants to pay you in cryptocurrency, what you would do is in that extension, you set up the currencies you're willing to take and just put an address that's on the exchange for that currency. You're going to be like, Jack, you said not to hold on exchanges. I did. Thank you for remembering it. That's a good idea. I really don't think you should. You're not going to hold or hodl. You're not going to do either one. You're going to get an order. You're going to be like, oh, somebody paid with Dogecoin. I don't like Dogecoin. I like Bitcoin. You're going to hop your happy ass over to your exchange, change it into Bitcoin, and transfer it to your wallet. You've just accepted Dogecoin, but you actually accepted Bitcoin. This is why when people say, Jack, will you accept, and they insert shitcoin here. I'm like, if I never heard of it before, I'm like, hold on. And I'm going to look on Polarity, Coinbase, and CoinX. And if one of them takes it, the answer is, yes, I will. And you should, too. Now, if you're running a – see, I sell one thing, a membership. So this is easy for me. And I do it manually. But if you're going to be selling, like, something out of a, a, a catalog – And you want to be able to do that, and you want to be able to do that in a way that doesn't require you messing around with crap all the time. All you need to do then is install this extension and then have it deposit to your exchanges. Now, some of you are like, but Jack, um, you said don't use the same address over and over again. And I, I do say that, but unless you have an extremely high volume in some particular coin, It's not that big a deal. You can go in and change the receiving address anytime that you want to. And I, I would advise that. And so if you have, if you're making four or five sales with Bitcoin a week, I would schedule like maintenance Monday to, to generate and, and swap that address out. So there's no more than a week of sales activity that can be kind of smithed out on any given address. You're probably not big enough that you have competitors that are out there trying to do that anyway. But if you, If you do it long enough, you become a target. So uh, I am not aware of a plugin that auto-generates an address unless you're going to run your own node. So that would be, if you know how to do that, then you know how to deal with that. And I don't have to explain it to you. Let's move on. Um, but crypto payments is, is what I recommend for that. I'll have a link in the show notes. Actually, it's already there. I can't forget this one so that you can, uh, you can kind of check that out. If you are, you know, if you're using a web store right now, on a WordPress website and you're not accepting cryptocurrency, even if you hate cryptocurrency, you also hate money. This is dumb. You should not do this. There are people who will buy your shit because you accept the coin that they like. And you're saying, no, I don't want incremental revenue. And when a business person says, this is nothing to do with cryptocurrency at this point. When a business person says, no, I don't want incremental revenue, my response is have fun being poor because you're stupid, because you hate money, because you're, you're turning down new money, extra money, money that you would not otherwise have, incremental revenue. When I have a discount, prospective discount vendor to the MSB, and they're like, man, what we want to do, we want to make you an affiliate and pay you per sale. And I'm like, take the money you pay me per sale. Give it to my private members, and I don't want it. And they're like, oh, man, we can't do that. I'm like, okay, I don't want to work with you because you're stupid. 
and you hate money, and I don't like partners that are stupid and hate money because you're going to go out of business, and I don't want partners that go out of business, and they get really upset, and I don't care because they're demonstrating right out of the gate that they do not understand the principle of business. The lifeblood of growth of any business is, in fact, incremental revenue. So if somebody wants to do, use a means of payment for you and you only want dollars, but it can be converted to dollars and you, instantly almost, and you don't take it, you hate dollars and dollars will hate you. That's how that works. Now, I think everybody should be stacking some Satoshis, but you don't have to. And that's, you know, I opened this up with a little bit on Jack Mahler's and Strike. You guys got to watch his pres. I don't care. Again, if you hate crypto, you still have to watch his presentation. You have to watch his presentation from Bitcoin Miami. Because the man has now built a system that anybody can use any wallet they want on from anywhere in the world. And any vendor accepting dollars can get dollars in an open payment system. They've even completely integrated that into Shopify, and they're working at bringing some of the biggest payment networks in the world onto it. And then that way, I look at it this way. If you buy something from somebody, you want what they sell, but you also want them to have money. If you hated the person selling you the thing, unless it was a necessity like food and you were starving, You'd go buy from somebody else. If you buy something from me for a hundred bucks, I assume you want the thing. Let's say you're paying with crypto and I give you a discount on MSB. I do that, by the way. You pay with crypto on MSB and I give you three years for a hundred bucks. Every day of the week, I do that if you pay with crypto. I don't advertise it, but I do it. So when you send me that hundred bucks for three years of MSB, I assume you actually want me to have a hundred dollars. And if you pay me with crypto, I pretty much end up with $100, one way or another. If you pay with, if you pay me 50 bucks for one year through PayPal or Strike, they take about $1.50 from me. So you tendered $50 consideration. I didn't get it all. And what Mahler's is building means that when you buy from the brand you like, they get all of your money, maybe less a penny. It's pretty amazing, and it's definitely worth looking into. And so I think that I will answer this question differently soon. We're just not there yet. Because I do think what Mahler's is doing is really a great idea in that his philosophy is if the company receives Bitcoin, and we're talking big companies here, people that do millions of dollars in sales, when they receive Bitcoin, they create this whole accounting nightmare. And if they want Bitcoin on their balance sheet, all they have to do is say each week we're going to take X percent of receipts, move it to Bitcoin and put it in reserves. And there's no um, capital gains associated with that. There's no tax consequences to that. And if they do do some trades, it's a very easy accounting calculation as to the tax consequences. But if they're constantly accepting Bitcoin, Dogecoin, douche nozzle coin, whatever, and constantly converting, they're creating this accounting nightmare. So allowing them to have the spender spends crypto, specifically Bitcoin with Jack's product, and the receiver gets dollars. How about this? The, the sender is spending Bitcoin in their head in Australian dollars with an American company who gets dollars. All that shit already exists. All that already exists. 
And uh, we'll come back to that a little bit more in a second. I had a question on hydroponics, and it involved my indoor hydroponics rack system that I have videos on. And for those who haven't seen it, it was made up of a very shallow tray at the top that just barely wet the bottom, and it was for growing microgreens at the top. And then it had two trays that grew things more like salad greens. And I called it like, because I didn't have a word for it, like a a cracky-ish, ebb and flow-like hydro. And the reason I did that is the big deep trays never went all the way empty, but there was a flood and drain-like component to it. So the water level would be kind of at the bottom of the grow media. And then every hour for 15 minutes, a pump would kick on. And that would actually, because it takes time for the water overflow, bring the level up. And then a pump would kick off and the water level would go back down to its base level. That's not really important to this question at all. Because that system could have been a constant flow system. So the level stayed the same. What they were concerned about is when you're doing hydro... Do you want the, the, the liquid to be always in contact with the media or should it, would it be better if it dried out some? Well, you don't really ever want it to dry out. Now with Kratky, where the water level keeps coming down and the nutrient level keeps coming down, the roots stay in contact. But an important thing to understand about hydro, if your reservoir goes dry, your plants die, and they do so fast. Dry equals die in hydro. You have no battery in the grow tank itself. Okay? You have no battery in the grow tank itself. Meaning that when the water stops flowing and the level goes down to the bottom, the plant has minutes of life. Because it only has as much moisture as it has in its body. And that's going to transpire out really, really quick. And probably everybody that's done Kratky has forgotten one. And if you didn't have a float valve to it, you, you walk out like your plant's like on the ground. And you're like, oh, I wonder if I can save it. The answer is no, it's dead. Unless you found it right when it happened, it's dead. So we never want dry roots ever. In hydro, when we do an ebb and flow bed with a media like Lika, yeah, it, it flows in, it completely flows out, but there's a lot of moisture retained in the lava rock or the Lika or the shale or what have you. You do not need to worry that you're too wet in hydro. And again, with hydro, the thing you should really be focused on is going to be leaf crops. That's your, your, your best crop. The reason people think this is a problem is they end up with like algae or mold growing on the surface of their grow media, usually like a rapid rooter plug or something like that. If that's happening, you have a couple things to look at, but most likely you're deficient in either nutrient or light. Either you're not running your lights long enough or you're running your lights at too low of a wattage, too low of an output. And the reason I say that, you'd think, well, wouldn't lots of light make more algae? Algae in itself is not a problem. It's okay. It, it's, it's okay that you have algae in your system. When you get to where, like, you have this coating of slime algae and this little pathetic plant, the plant's not out competing the algae. 
And that usually means that you are in a situation where you're not getting enough light for the plant, but you are getting enough light for the algae because algae needs very little light. So wet is not a problem in hydro. The whole thing is supposed to be wet. Or you're not moving water quickly enough and you're not getting enough oxygen in your water and your roots on your plants are wounded because they're O2 deficient. So we either need to pump air with an air pump into uh, your system or we need to up the wattage or we need to up, we have the chemicals out of balance. Something's wrong because you should have that problem. When we're growing in a good, well-balanced hydro system, things like greens and then, you know, your vegetables that do best in hydro, if you have room and space and light for them, tomatoes and cucumbers. Like it's, it's leaf crops, tomatoes and cucumbers. And I, I just think you're better off looking at, if you're going to use a hydro component or an aquaponics component, or aquatic component, wicking beds for everything else. So you can, you could fertilize in the soil. Um, but when you're growing one of those three things with hydro, or the special herb with hydro. It should grow quick enough that it outcompetes just about anything else. Or you've got a problem there. So it's not really how how deep or how much water to keep in there. It's making sure that your plants are growing adequately and you won't have to worry about it. Next up, this was an interesting question. I don't get a ton of gun questions anymore. I I thought this one was cool. It was a round, a new round. I'm not I wasn't aware of until somebody asked the question. And I've got it up on the screen for those that want to take a look at it. If you want to pull up the video later, if you're on the audio, you can. And it's called the Federal Sturdy Super Carry. It's the Super Carry. Um, my instinct when I heard about this was blah, blah, blah. I mean, everything super this and giant expansion that and you know, we, we, we have great personal defense rounds in the nine millimeter and the 40 Smith and Wesson, et cetera, 357 SIG. But when I looked at this, it actually makes a pretty good case for what it is. But I'm not recommending you run out and buy one right now. We'll get to that in a second. Let's talk a little bit about what this is. This is a straight walled 30 caliber cartridge. It shoots at a fairly high pressure. Uh, it is from what I can see by the ballistics and the testing and gels, damn lethal. Certainly every bit as lethal as the 9mm. Ballistically, it's the 30 caliber cousin of the 9mm. It is very similar in its impact and capabilities to the 9mm, and it's far superior to the 380 auto. What's the point? The point is more compact weapon and or more rounds in the magazine. So... If all things are equal with grip length, uh, we would, with a double stack, for instance, be able to have a slightly slimmer profile on the grip, same length grip, 10 rounds of 9mm equals 12 rounds of the 30 Super Carry. It really is, and there's some videos you can watch and all. I'm not going to play them here so that the audio guys don't get left out on this. Um, it really is, in my opinion, the first round ever made from the drawing board up for the concealed carry person. What we've had is, okay, we have all these great pistol rounds. And again, I have a link to where you can learn more on Federal's website about this round. Um, but we, we've had for a long time all these great, it's a 32, uh, what Chris says. Yeah, it's, it's really not. Um, but we've had all these great rounds. 9mm is a great round. 40 Smith is, well, it's 
it's for limp wristed FBI guys that couldn't handle the 10 millimeter, right? Um, but it's, it's a, it's a good round, right? It, it does what it's supposed to do. The 357 SIG is a fantastic round. First thing I did when I got a 40, uh, a 40 Smith and Wesson SIG 239 was swap the barrel out. And, you know, because it uses the same, uh, case, the, the mother case of the 357 SIG is a 40, I didn't even have to change out the magazines. But we've never really built around and said, we're building around based on today's handgun technology for concealed carry. And that's what they did here. And it looks like, I don't know yet, it looks like they did a pretty good job. And, um, and, and so that's, that's fine. However, Uh, I don't remember, I, sh I shouldn't have closed that page. There is a, I think it's Eagle Customs, some custom, uh, brand and Smith and Wesson that actually make guns for it now. Like, we're, if you want to buy one, you want to go out and get one, you can go out and get one. Those two platforms. So, what I would say to you is, should you get one? If you want a gun, that takes this round now, and you want that platform now, okay, go get one. Put it through its paces. Worst thing happens is you lose a little bit of money if it doesn't really take off, and uh, you you sell that at a gun show or something like that, right? Or you trade it in, and you buy what you really wanted in the first place. Like, you, you take that risk. I would not go buy this in a gun that I wouldn't buy anyway. That's how, when, when something like this comes out, people will run out and get it just because it's a new shiny thing to have, right? And so you got this guy that loves his Glock 19 that's going out and buying a Smith and Wesson that he doesn't really love because that's how he can get the round. My view is this round will either sink or swim. Like they all, all new rounds, they either take off or they don't. There are a few that kind of occupy a niche and there's a few things, few, few guns that have them and they don't really end up like in every Remington Winchester, you know, Smith and Wesson Glock, et cetera. It's, and really it's more rifle rounds that do this and that's fine. And there are some that are, they, they make a good case for, I'm going to go buy this Marlin lever gun in this round because I like lever guns and this is a great, this is the best, best lever gun round there is. When we come into something like a handgun cartridge like this, it's either going to fly or flop. If it flies, whatever you like to carry, there will be a version of it thereof that you can get your hands on. Now, why do I think this even matters? The biggest impediment to carry is comfort. The biggest impediment to carry is comfort. And the more compact, yet still, you know, fully functional, fully lethal, when necessary, we can make a handgun, the more likely a person is to consistently carry, meaning the more likely they are to have the weapon with them when they need it. So let's say that this round is, is not as good from a standpoint of reliability of first round shot stopping power. That's what we really want. Like lethality is one thing, but what you really want is if I pull a gun because I'm in a life 
life-threatening situation, either for myself or somebody else. And I put a round or two into the center mass of the target the way that I'm trained to do. What I'm hoping, and it is hope, and it's always hope, and don't ever think it's not hope. What good trainers will always teach you is what should you expect when you shoot a threat? You should expect nothing. You should expect the threat to continue and you shoot until it stops. But what we're hoping is one round, two rounds, center of mass, threat ceases. And let's say this round has a lower percentage of first round shot stops than a 357.6 or a 40 or a 9 or whatever. Or the super duper looper new thing that somebody makes next week. But the super duper looper 9mm quad 7 that you think is the best stopping round ever, that day you were wearing really thin clothing because you it was hot as fuck out and you didn't really like think that it was a big threat and it was probably pretty safe. And so that day you looked at your carry gun and you said, eh, not today. And then you need it. What would you rather have, the magical unicorn special round or the one that you actually carried? So would you rather have an empty hip or a gun on the hip in that situation? And the answer, if you're not retarded, is I'd rather have a gun than not have a gun. So I think if this works, if, big ass word in the English language, if, if this really works out, if this is what it's marketed to be, and it results in a new line of reliable, dependable handguns that carry more comfortably, I'm all for it, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet, and I wouldn't go spend my money on it, and that's why I wouldn't go spend my money on it yet. And there's all kinds of people saying there's other things that do this thing. We'll see. And that's the beauty of living in America where we actually, for now, unless Brandon gets his way, can still own guns, including handguns. I think you should carry what you want to carry. And again, if you want to carry a Caltech 22 Mag P30, because by the way, it carries beautifully. It's a larger frame, but it's so light. It carries like, it's, yeah. You know, do I recommend a 22 Magnum for a carry caliber? No, but again, would I rather have my iPhone or a carry gun? I'm just saying, like, you should carry what you are comfortable with. And it's been said by somebody else here. I don't remember who now in the comments. You should train like you fight. Next up, um, odd question. Never had this one before. Person has a broody goose. No goose eggs. <laughs> Maybe I, I didn't read the whole thing really well. I was putting this together quickly because I've got a lot of shit going on today and I'm gone next week and all. Um, so maybe what happened is they have a goose that's laying eggs but doesn't have a gander, so you know they're not fertile. But they got fertile duck eggs. And they're like, will a goose hatch duck eggs? The answer is, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I would say that your risk in trying it is incredibly low. I'm putting it on the show today just in case anybody's ever did it. I have done the following. I have used chickens to hatch ducks. I've used bantam chickens to hatch full-size ducks. That's a that's a fun thing to watch a mother bantam chicken like two weeks into this going, what the hell have I done? I have used ducks to hatch chickens. And it's all worked fine. Now you're talking about a really big bird and a fairly small egg. I think it would be totally worth trying. I think that a goose would do a fine job mothering baby ducks. 
I think she might kind of give it the what, is, what have I done look at some point. But in the end, I think that you are much closer in behavior between goose and duck than you are chicken and duck. And I've done the chicken and duck both directions. So as, if anybody here has done it and, or wants to let me know by email, it'd be kind of cool. And I think that if you are in a situation like that, what's your risk? What's your risk if you know you have good fertile duck eggs of taking this broody goose you know, and, and try not to get your face pecked or wing beat when you're doing it and giving her, you know, a half a dozen, a dozen duck eggs and seeing what happens. Your risk is that she decides these aren't my eggs. I don't really want to do this. And she leaves them. You know, I mean, people try to, people try to brood or I should say incubate eggs all the time and have failures. She's probably more likely to succeed than you are. A goose, I think the incubation period is 35 days, and most of your ducks, is, it's either 27 or 28, and I, I don't think that will really be much of a problem. I think that she'll know the development of the eggs, and she'll know when to stop turning, I, I, I would think, because, again, a chicken's 21, and a duck is 28, and I've had that work out, and I've also seen Muscovies incubate Conventional ducks, you're, the Muscovy, like the goose, is really kind of close to the goose in lineage, 35-day incubation versus 28. So I've never seen a problem. So I, I don't think there'd be a problem. But, again, if there is, what's the big deal? Next up, um, somebody asked me about investing for their kids. And this is an interesting question. It kind of blends into the number nine question, so we'll put them together here about you have to decide certain things for yourself, guys. But they said, well, I want to invest for my children's future. Should I save dollars, stocks, silver and gold, or Bitcoin? I don't know, man. That's an investment decision. But I wanted to talk a little bit about investing, period, quote, for my children, end quote. I think the idea of, like, trust fund mentality, and even people that don't have enough money to truly have a trust fund, that's what we're doing. We're doing trust fund mentalities. You know, whether it's a 529 plan, which I think is stupid and the devil and should never be done because you don't know your kid's going to college. I'm sorry, you don't. And they can change the rules on programs like that. And one of the things you have to understand, if all you plan on doing, let's say you're going to invest in mutual funds, and I'm going to do a 529 plan because it grows tax-free. Well, other than dividends, so does everything else, dummy. So does everything else. What I mean is if you're buying stock and a stock is appreciating in value, it's an underlies gain. You don't pay tax on it anyway. Like the whole idea of retirement accounts is really that when you retire and you take the money out, it's tax-free. If you don't do that, there's no point. That's why I always say to do Roths. But you have to think about it. If you're saving money for your children's future, and they do use it for college when they're 20 and broke. How big's their income? Their, their tax is very low anyway. Who cares? Right. And then they still have the freedom to do things. So don't lock it into these things. But I don't know that most of us need to be allocating the money in the name of the child. You don't know if your child's going to be a heroin addict. I hope they're not, but you don't know that. You don't know when you're going to want to turn that money over to them. You don't know that you're going to, that you're going to want to turn that money over to them. And the one thing you want to do is if there's any strings attached to the money being turned over, like over time, how much, when, objectives, you want control of that. The government doesn't. So 
First of all, I think when it comes to investing in your child's future, that's really investing in your future. And unless there's a compelling reason, it doesn't need to be in the name of or set aside for, just save as much as you can. And that way you decide what you do in the future with your wealth in regard to your children and then do that thing then. Now, should you be saving Bitcoin for your kids? I don't know. Do you save Bitcoin for yourself? The form of the investment should be the investment that you would save for yourself over the same time period. And I can't tell you what that is because I'm not an investment manager or advisor. I think that if you don't have, I think if you don't have Bitcoin in your financial plan, you're a dumbass right now. I, I'll just say it. And you can be upset with me if you want. That's just what I think. Now, how much? I don't know. I don't know. I'll tell you that my grandchildren do have some silver and we give them silver a few times a year and a couple ounces here, three ounces there type thing. You know, it's not going to be enough to you know buy a yacht with someday or something, but we do it to teach intrinsic value of real money. And we do it because there's a certain component to a kid being able to hold a thing and look at a thing. Like I got some of the shipwreck silver and I gave some of that to my grandson and my granddaughter. Cause not only does it have value It has numismatic value, but it also has sentimental value. To, to have a kid be able to look at a thing and understand this was on a ship. The ship sunk to the bottom of the ocean. It was valuable enough that people made an effort to recover it. And then it was minted into this coin commemorating the ship that sank. And I'm 25 now and my grandpa's gone, but I have this from him. I'm not really worried about the monetary investment in that one. So we try to do this plethora of things that we leave behind for them. And I think it's very noble, but it's small amounts of money. If you want to stack sats for your kids, I think it does make sense maybe to get them on a wallet, teach them how it works, show them how it works. But Guys, if you do that, then you have a teenager who knows how cryptocurrency works that might have access to a lot of money. So you might want to multi-sig that shit or something, right? So that you got to come see, you, you got to come see daddy if you want the little stick to actually make it work, right? You can deposit your ass off, but if you want to send, you're going to need this, right? So I think it's good to educate our kids in this, but you're going to have to decide how you invest in your child's future for yourself. I can't tell you that. All I can tell you is, I try to make sure that I'm putting aside money for my kids or my grandkids at this point in the same form I am for myself. I don't differentiate between the two. It's like if Bitcoin's not good for me, then Bitcoin's not good for my kid. If Bitcoin's good for me, then Bitcoin's good for my kid. Which means that the next one, which is kind of similar but different, gentleman is in New York State, hates it, wants to leave, has a really good job, 140 grand a year. Pretty much killed off the debt, a little bit of debt left, but has really waxed ass on the debt lately. Uh, was a TSP listener back in the day, 2012-ish. Heard me talk about Bitcoin even all the way back then. Didn't get any wishes they did. Now they have, you know, reverse FOMO, I guess, right? I missed out instead of fear of missing out. And they want to know, well, what should I do, Jack? Should I just keep working this job and stack sats? Or should I take the money I have? except a lower income and move somewhere like Virginia or West Virginia or something like that rural and get the hell out of here. Again, dude, I, I, I can't tell you what to do there. Right. It's, it, it actually, this is not a Bitcoin question. This has nothing to do with Bitcoin. Let me change the question and show you how it doesn't actually make it any different. 
Um, right now, I think the stock market is about to get waxed in the ass pretty soon. It already has to a degree, but it's, it's pulled, pulled back up quite a bit. But I think long term here, long term over a couple of years, we're going to have the full realization of this recession sink in and it's bad guys. It's worse than 08. And what that means is there will be blood in the water and it will be time to buy. It's not going to go away forever, right? Like, like all, all the stuff that people want won't stop being stuff people want forever. So you'll have this buying opportunity. So what if you said, Hey, I think I should stack cash and, and buy in some on equities, but really wait. And then when the equity market's right, I should go all in and I should keep investing and stay here and invest in conventional equities. Okay. What if he didn't believe inflation? I think it would be dumb. But if he said, I should just stack cash because even with inflation, I can stack faster than inflation. And I should keep working and keep building up my wealth. What if he said, I, I, I think that the real opportunity is silver and I should stack silver or gold. Or I should throw my money mostly right now because I think the market's going to go down into hedge funds. Or I'm a believer in shit coins and I think I should stack doge. See, all of those would be, Jack, tell me what you think of my investment. I can't. Other than I think Doge would be stupid long term and I think Bitcoin would be solid, but it's still your choice on the form. The real question is, do I keep earning this high income and accumulating monetary wealth or do I take the monetary wealth that I have and acquire real property as wealth and live in a place that I'm happier? What's the value of your happiness? How long do you think this can go on before you're too miserable to make it worth doing? These are all personal decisions. I can't say this for you. But I would say you sound like you hate where you live. So maybe the question should be, how can I maintain as much of my current income as possible and live somewhere that I don't hate? And if you ask yourself the right question, then you might get the right answer because you're giving yourself a binary option. I'm going to move to rural West Virginia and make $29,000 a year as a welcome person at Walmart, or I'm going to stay in New York making a bunch of money. There just might be a way to make effectively the same money. And I think that that's something that you guys that are thinking about moving need to think about. You need to look at the cost of living where you're going. And the cost of living, let's say the cost of living is 35% less And it doesn't matter where. You're in location A. If you move from location A to location B, your cost of living is 35% less. To make it round numbers, you're making $100,000 in location A. You move to location B and you make $65,000. You've changed your, your, your place and you've maintained your income. If you're honest when you do the numbers, you, you can lie about the numbers And then you can screw that up, right? But if you're honest about the numbers and the real cost of living, the differential is the same as the income, you're flat. There's another way to look at it, though. It's even better. I like this option. My, my income's a hundred grand. Factor up and down for yourself. Cost of living decreases by 35 points, but my income decreases by 20. You moved and got a 15% raise. And see how that works. That's And Lisa's saying, move, and probably, but I can't say that. When the person says they're unhappy, I don't know what that means. Are you unhappy at being totally happy is a 10, being ready to put a gun in your mouth is a zero, and you're a 
I, I can do pretty well for a while at a 7.5. If I'm at a 2, I'm getting awful close to, right? And if I'm there, I'm moving. And only you can answer that for yourself. And, but I, that's what I would look at is how do I get to a better place and keep my income as high as possible? That could be whatever you do. The guy makes a buck 40 a year. Now, depending on where, where in New York, is that Poughkeepsie or is it Manhattan? Poughkeepsie, it's a pretty good income, right? Uh, Manhattan, you could be working as a freaking dock receiving guy or something and make that in Manhattan and not have any money. Uh, this guy seems like he has a decent cash flow and a decent life other than he doesn't like the geography. I would see what you can do about changing the geography without radically changing the income. And if you can do that, then that's what I would do. Then I would agree with Lisa 100% move. And uh, let's move on from there. Last one today, I wanted to talk to you guys about this. And I think this is, this is really important. And it's why I added it. This wasn't from anybody. This is just listening to people chatter with each other over the last week. We use the word currency a lot. There's currency and there's money. And this is not a Bitcoin discussion. Don't worry. But money would be something like gold or Bitcoin. It's a store of value. And currency is a means of exchange so that we can acquire value. And that value that we acquire might be a temporary transitory value. So if I buy a sandwich, right, it, it, that's transitory value. It's worth an awful lot to me while I'm stuffing it in my face. And then it gives me a battery of calorie energy that I have for a time. And by the next day, I've trans, the, the value has translated to zero. It, it no longer has any value except it kept me alive and I'm still here. Or I can have a value that I acquire that actually grows over time uh, in its output. If I buy a 3D printer, I get to keep it so I now have an asset on the balance sheet and I can depreciate it if it's in a business. But if it prints stuff that I sell, it's now a revenue source. Or if it prints things that I use, it's now an ongoing value creation tool for myself. And almost everything that we buy is either value for a time, something that truly does depreciate in reality over, let's say, five years, or something that maintains value over time. And those can all be thought as stores of value, but not money. Right? You can barter them, but they're not money in that they're subjective in value. Uh, if I go to Bill, he sees a certain value in an Endler 3 printer that's been well-maintained, and Tom sees a different value. And if I have five printers, I'm probably going to get a different price for all of them. Where if I have five Bitcoins, I can put them on an exchange, five different exchanges and get within a point of the same value at any given point in time. So that's gold. That's money. Currency is the mean of exchange. So the dollar to me is not money because it's not a store of value over time. It's a form of currency for exchange. But I think that we have to look at one more thing as a currency that we don't generally think of as a currency. Your skill set. Your skills and the tools that you have that you can apply those skills to and that you can exchange with other people for value, whether it's for other currency dollars, stores of value, gold, Bitcoin, silver, or items that have either long-term value or transitory value tools is the greatest currency that you will ever have. 
you will never have a currency that's more valuable to you until you build up a reserve than that. And, and what I mean by that is let's say that you had some gold, but it got stolen. You had Bitcoin and it got stolen because you were stupid and you didn't have your own keys and the exchange shut you off. It's gone. It's over. Out. Done. Doesn't matter what it was. I know one person, good member of this community, that at one time was a multi-millionaire in cryptocurrency. And this was a long time ago because it was during when there was a thing called Mt. Gox. And they had all their crypto on Mt. Gox when Mt. Gox got hacked and they lost all their money. So they went from being a multi-millionaire to penniless overnight. They're doing pretty well right now, though, because of the skill set. And we are moving into a world where I think a lot of the generalized consumerism, cheap products for a time, is going to start dying. And people more and more, as we move toward a harder currency, and you can fill your own mind with what that means, are going to start realizing that when I exchange with Jack, I'm exchanging with Jack, not some brand. And I want to do business with Jack, or I want to do business with Mike or Cletus or anybody else that's here in the chat, for instance, Lumna. Uh, I want to do, I want to exchange with Marco or Josh or Lisa. And I want to know the person that I'm dealing with. But I also don't want to exchange with them just because I like the look of their face. Like they have to have some value. And I don't think there's been a time in history where it's more important to develop skill sets and value than right now. Because that's something that nobody can take away from you. Other than some sort of horrible accident, like you become paralyzed or something like that. Because it happens, right? You get hit by the gravel truck, but it doesn't kill you, but you do end up in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. Short of that, You take a person with a good breadth of skills and a willingness and a determination to succeed, and you drop them off in any town in America with almost nothing, a couple hundred bucks in their pocket so they don't get thrown in jail for being vagrant. Come back in a year. They might not be living in a Taj Mahal or nothing, but they're probably got a place to live. They probably eat three squares a day. They're probably accumulating wealth. They might actually be on track, even if you move them back from where they were, they might be on track to be further ahead in 10 years had you not done that to them. Because their entire perspective changes, and when they do, you have this one experience that, hey, I can have nothing and I can build something Then the person already had skills. The one more skill they have now is the knowledge of what they can do with those skills. And it's why there are so many rags to riches to rags back to riches stories. And there's a transcendental moment in that that should never be overlooked. And it's the same transcendental moment that you have if you take a real wilderness skills course and you do maybe a week of training and then somebody drops you off in the woods And says, I'll see you in a week. And a week later, you come out of it and you realize, if I had had to go another week, I could have done it. Maybe I would have been comfortable. Maybe I would have stunk really bad. Who knows? But I would have been okay. And then you go, so you can literally take almost everything I own except the stuff I can carry on my body and I can survive. Well, then you have nothing anymore. There's nothing you can truly take from me. The entire means by which 
you are controlled as a human being by your rulers and your overlords, your government and your oligarchs, is to make you think that you need them. The more you feel that you need them, the more they control you. When you know you don't need them, then you partake in their systems as you choose. At your own discretion, you build that Venn diagram I talk about with agorism and the conventional market all at the same time. And when you make that transition, it's forever. It's why there's so many people that are entrepreneurs and their, their current business doesn't work off, but they don't get a job at Walmart when it fails. Or if they do, it's like, this is so my family eats while I build the next thing. And they just build another thing because you can't ever take it away. But it comes from root skills. So I encourage you to invest right now. We talked about investing a lot today in you. And I don't care what you know how to do. Learn one or two new things every year, every quarter, whatever works for you. Like hard skill sets of things you can actually do. Like 3D printing, man. I'm telling you. And it ain't just about guns. This is the future. I was watching, you know, 3D printing is what we call additive technology. And I was watching a video recently of basically extruded welded metal. But it's the same principle. It's, it's 3D printing with metal. We already 3D print houses with concrete. Not widely yet, but we do. Like, this is the future. If you can understand how to develop design and print with a 3D printer, you can print with anything we ever developed that will print. You think that might be valuable? You think it might be something good for your kids to learn? This is the current, the currency of the future. The currency of the future is humanity. But only if humanity doesn't turn into the idiocracy. With that, let's, let's hit a few of your questions, uh, and comments for me. Uh, the Wicker Basket Homestead says, what software wallet do you recommend for noobs to get off the exchange? Exodus. Exodus. Just get Exodus. Get on your smartphone. Get on your computer. Go to Exodus.io and download it. I want to say something about downloading wallets from the App Store or Google Play Store. Do not trust that Apple and Google are doing their job of making sure you don't get suckered. So always go, if you're going to use Exodus, go to Exodus's main website. And then launch their app download from their website. If you're going to use Edge Wallet, Coinami, whatever, always take that approach. But I'll tell you, as long as it's a non-custodial wallet, meaning that you hold your own keys and it's well thought of, I don't care. Just get your shit off the exchange. And again, I'll hit one more time on this. There are those of you who like, I know you know how to send Bitcoin off Coinbase because you bought MSB with it from me. So you said, hey, Jack, where do I send this hundred bucks? And I said, send it here. And you did. And then I got it. And then you got MSB. And you're like, I, I really don't know how to get. Yes, you do. All you need to do is get your own wallet, send it to yourself. That's it, right? Eric says, never even think to check the balance of the addresses that send to me. Interesting. It is an interesting thing, Eric. And it's something I recommend people do because this is what's totally going to happen. When you get it from Coinbase or something and they have like 600 Bitcoin on there, you're like, so what? I don't care. doesn't mean anything. But you're going to get a Bitcoin payment from somebody or Ether payment. It's even worse because they have one account number, right? 
And you'd be like, oh, I wonder. And you're going to look and you go, oh, this dude has like a million and a half dollars on one address. Well, that's kind of stupid. And you're going to think, boy, I, 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 what Jack says not to do that, I, I really shouldn't do that because that was easy. And maybe nobody knows that's your address, but when you send from it, they know it's your address. You see how that works? Uh, Eric also says, Jack, I'm assuming if you'll be in the TNSOE, you'll be speaking and not just meet and greet. Yes, I will be speaking. I will be doing a presentation called Build Your Empire While There's Crumbles, uh, which is a version of the one I did for Anarchapoco and for Exit and Build and for Float. It's always a little bit different. I hope you enjoy it. And I will also be participating in some form of panel with John and Nicole, I think, on Sunday. Michael says, I live on a mountainside with red clay and rocks. Erosion takes a lot away. I'm having good luck with straw bale gardens, and I use the straw bales to direct water runoff. Okay, that's great. I had pretty poor – my feeling on straw bale gardening was this. It worked. It took so much input in the form of nitrogen – that there's easier ways to do things. But uh, I will say red clay is actually great to grow in once you condition it, and it is very good at retaining moisture, which makes it very drought-proof. Uh, how much time do you budget for managing exchange holdings per week? Very little, Mike. Almost none. I, I, it takes me longer to explain it than to do it. So imagine this, Mike. Imagine that you used uh, Shitcoin XYZ and you bought... Bitcoin for me, for me. What's going to happen? You're going to fill out a form and it's going to say, what crypto do you want to use? So I'm going to get the form in an email and it's going to say, Mike wants to join. He wants to use shitcoin XYZ. If I already know that CoinX takes it, then I'm just going to go to CoinX and get the address. If I'm not sure, I'm going to go to CoinX and check. There's five seconds of my time. I'm going to get an address and I'm going to send it to you and say, I have a form email. All it's going to do is say, here's how you can pay with blank. And I'm going to put in shitcoin XYZ. Here's an address for it, cut and paste. And I'm gonna, and then it, it says there, you can pay for one year for 50 bucks or three years for 100. Let me know which one you do after you make the payment. And you're going to send it. And I'm going to send it to you. You're going to get it. And either you're going to complete or not complete your payment. I'm not even worried about you until you complete payment. I'm going to get a thing from CoinX and it says, hey, you just had a deposit for X number of shitcoin XYZ. I'm going to know you paid at that point. I'm still hoping you're going to email me back because I like talking to you. I'm going to go over to CoinX, and I'm going to say, trade to Bitcoin, withdraw to wallet, done. That's it. If I got a 1,000 payments a week, that might be cumbersome, and I would use this plugin to do it with. The way I do things, I get maybe 10% of my memberships in crypto, and of those, 80% are Bitcoin. So if it's Bitcoin, I just send you a Bitcoin address. It's easy, right? I mean then I don't even have to do the other thing. So uh, I don't spend a lot of time doing it. And you, if you do this, you probably won't have to. If you get so much crypto that you have to spend time on it, that's a good problem. K-Bong says, symbol swap works well for shit coins also. So, yeah, you can use swapping services. I like exchanges because I feel more comfortable, especially a no-KYC exchange like CoinEx. Uh, Hit'em20 says, please keep discussing Bitcoin on your company's balance sheet. We don't accept Bitcoin, but would like to use cash reserves to purchase and hold. Um, oh, please discuss keeping on your company's balance sheet. Okay, so this is one of these things that people think is complicated, and it's not. Now, when it's a company's balance sheet, 
you probably are going to have to go into some form of a custodial relationship, at least multi-sig, so there's documentation that it's on your balance sheet. But it's property. It's non-depreciating property or variable value property. That's all that it is. So your accountant should be able to handle that. So you have Bitcoin, it's on an address or group of addresses, and it's held by the company. Where it gets a little bit gray is, does the company really hold it? Who has access to it, what have you? So that's something that you would have to have, depending on the size of your company, a conversation with your CFO or the CPA return uh, firm that you retain is to exactly how do we custody this. And this is why a lot of large companies, they custody with exchanges, which I, I think is a mistake because then they can say, well, XYZ company has custody in our behalf. I, I would deeply encourage corporations holding Bitcoin to hold with a multi-signature arrangement um, and then do whatever you need to do. And then Michael Saylor has, I'll see if I can find it online, but he has a whole website that's dedicated to this. And I would go there for that because I don't, hold Bitcoin in the name of the survival podcast. I don't hold any Bitcoin. I, Jack Spierko just happens to have some knowledge about some data that gives him control over some numbers. Uh, it's a different situation because when you're holding on a corporate balance sheet, you want it there as an asset and you want to maybe have the potential to use it later. Derek says, any advice for getting rid of woodpeckers? No. I did unfortunately have one die recently. He flew into the uh, big picture window and killed himself. Um, I wouldn't want to get rid of a woodpecker. This is something that, so you got a woodpecker and he's pecking on this tree and you think he's killing the tree. If a woodpecker's pecking a tree, the tree is either dead or dying. And there's something in the tree that the woodpecker wants. Woodpeckers are not termites. They don't eat wood. Like Woody Woodpecker and he pecks the whole tree and the whole tree is gone and he eats it. That's not how woodpeckers only eat things like beetles and stuff like that that are in the tree and they eat nuts and things like that off the tree. So if you have a woodpecker and your problem is you think he's killing your tree, he's telling you your tree is either dead or dying. So I wouldn't get rid of him for that. Um, I like woodpeckers, so I, I wouldn't know. Now, if I really needed to get rid of a woodpecker, a uh, gamo pellet gun, that's about the only reliable woodpecker elimination strategy I can give you. There was a woodpecker that I think a lot of people did want gone. I thought he was cool when I was a kid, but we had a really great big metal tower that they put this. It's like one of those, you know, man climb towers. It was, you know, a couple feet uh, on each side, three sided metal tower. You could climb up with a big transmitter and a satellite dish on it. And what they did is they wrapped um, hardware cloth around like the first 10 feet of it so that as the kids couldn't climb up it. So of course we, we cut holes in the hardware cloth so we could climb up it and we would dare each other to see who would climb this thing the highest. That was probably pretty stupid, but that was the eighties. And, uh, there was a satellite dish. It wasn't really a satellite dish, but it looked like a satellite dish at the top of it. And it was probably a two foot diameter thing with this transmitter. It was kind of cool looking, it looked space age or whatever in the eighties. And this freaking woodpecker, I guess he was sharpening his beak. He would go up there and he would peck it and it would make this rattling sound that went through the whole apartment complex. And a lot of the adults hated it, but I thought it was cool. Uh, Zone six, Eric says, hello, Jack, growing sweet potatoes for a second year, had some difficulty getting slips. 
That's why you should make your own, man. Uh, real quick on making slips. Real easy way to do it. You know the toothpicks and put it in a glass and it, screw that. Get a dish or a shallow pan that the sweet potato can lay on a slide in. Fill it so it's about one-third to half the, the, the depth of the potato's height and just lay it in there. You'll actually get more slips that way. And you only have to save one sweet potato every year. And here's another tip. Take your sweet potato at the end of your season. Make slips indoors right away. Plant them as a house plant. Put them in a sunny window. Fertilize it and grow a sweet potato house plant through your winter. And then you can just pinch and root in your spring. That's what we started doing last year. Uh, K-Bonk, $10 super chat. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. There's no comment or question to go with it or I would read it. So a bunch of thumbs up. Thumbs up to you, brother. Thank you for the super chat. Marco says, instead of a new bullet, why not work with round placement? Marco, when it comes to the 30, the 30, 30 super carry, it's nothing to do with round placement. It's about a smaller form factor of the weapon. If it was, here's the 9mm Super 9mm, and they made the 9mm a millimeter longer on the case length so it could shoot faster, I would agree with you. The reason I'm open to this is because if it makes a more comfortable, reliable, concealed carry gun frame available, thinner, lighter, whatever, and it's more comfortable to carry, then it may have value. I, I agree with you on, like, more power won't get you there. In fact, it's not more power. It's equal power, smaller frame. That's what they're going for there. Uh, Got to think of the inflation tax, too. I'm not sure exactly what you were talking about, Troy, but you're right. And if you don't think inflation is a tax, you don't understand inflation. Troy does. Green Country Agroforestry says the best investment for your children is to teach them how to build wealth for themselves. I agree. And so rather than save money for my kids, if I want my grandkids, because you know, my, my son's in his 30s now, he can earn his own damn money, I do not give them any money. Now, Grandma does. Grandma has – each kid gets a piggy bank each year, and she shoves change and a couple bucks here and every once in a while a 20 in it, and then the piggy banks build up over time and what have you. Um, in general, when I want them to have something, other than the silver coins, because that's just a gift from Grandpa. I give them jobs, and then I let them earn money. And then I think if you earn money and you want to piss some money away, you should be able to. But if I want them to save money, I require them to save a specific percentage of the money that they earn. And I also encourage them, like around Christmas time and all, to think about things like Toys for Tots or something and spending some of the saved money to give some money away. And I think that is teaching wealth building. And I'm always trying to plant you – know, my grandson's old enough now to start thinking this way – Dude, there's 10 different businesses you could start running out there right now. He's not on board with it yet, but I will keep hammering that point home. Like, I have a market. You could do plant propagation. I'm not gonna, but you could. And I would be able to sell everything you could grow, but you're not doing it, so you don't have any money. And so I don't think it's important just to teach how to build wealth and how to earn money but to point out when the opportunity is being missed and not be like, you better do it. I think that's dumb. I think it's much better to just go, the opportunity's there. You're not taking it. Shut up and go away. Plant the seed. Let the seed grow. Hunter uh, says, point, how is trust mentality different than generational thinking? I'm not sure of the question, Hunter. I don't know what you're asking me. 
trust mentality versus generational thinking. Oh, trust is in a legal trust. How is a legal trust different than generational thinking? I think the, the issue with like trust fund mentality is what you're talking about is that you're creating a sense of entitlement to a degree. One of the really interesting movies that I watched, and it was such a good movie for the last 20 minutes, and it just went off into left field like so many of Oliver Stone's movies do, was W. And I think it was a pretty fair assessment of George W. Bush. And, by the way, if you've not seen it, the actors in it are so well cast, except for Old Man Bush, Old Man H.W. The guy they have play him is nothing like his character at all. Sounds nothing, looks nothing. But it's a lot of truth in that movie. And W, of course, inherited a fortune. The family was worth buku money. That all goes back to Prescott Bush, who was selling jet fuel to additives to the Nazis in the middle of World War II while uh, George Sr. was out as a fighter pilot risking his ass. He was trading with the enemy, his dad was. Um, but one thing I got out of it was one of the reasons that W had so many misadventures as a young man is the old man was like, you don't get your freaking share of the family money until you go do something useful with yourself. And he made him kind of earn his place. You can decide whether or not you think he did, but at least there was an expectation. You don't just get this. And so I think generational thinking is about building multi-generational wealth, but it's also about empowering that next generation to do something with it. Because if you just do it, we've seen what trust funds do. Trust funds, maybe in the first handoff, work. But in the second, third, fourth handoffs, it just becomes, my family's rich and I get money one day. So I think empowering that next generation to not only understand that this is what was done before and now you steward it, but you're stewarding it not for you. You're stewarding it, stewarding it for your grandchildren. In some ways, because I, I pick on, you know, monarchy and government and overreach a lot, but I think there is some level of like when you see a royal family done right, that young prince coming up, understands the weight the crown may bear upon him someday and does it with reverence where, you know, what we have now is the royals and the tabloids. Like that's the difference there is that when you trust fund somebody and that's all you do is trust fund them, you create that situation where I think they feel entitled to like, it's mine. It's my, all I have to do is make it to 25 and I'm rich. Right. I th and I think that that can be rich in real, real wealth. Like, Like a couple million bucks or more. But I think when you're 25, if you come from kind of humble background and there's like, I have a $50,000 trust fund I get when I'm 25, you think you're rich and you really piss it away then. And when we give people too much wealth too fast, um, yeah, I think what happens is that we give them a weapon that they're not ready to hold. Wealth is power and power is dangerous in the wrong hands. And it can often be dangerous not to others, but to the person with the power in their own hand. If I put you in behind the wheel of a Ferrari and you don't know how to drive a car, you're probably going to kill yourself and others. Uh, I'm not sure why I had 
Eric's comment there, so we'll skip that one. The Wicker Basket Homestead said, don't let the tax tail wag the dog. Don't make investing decision based on avoiding taxes. Yeah, I, I, I talk about that a lot, too, and I think we should talk about it more. I don't want to sell because then I'll have to pay capital gains. In the long-term strategy, do you come out ahead? Yeah, then pay the capital gains, right? Don't make the mistake of you're so trying to avoid taxes, you avoid income, right? Because I, I tell you right now how to pay no taxes. Don't make any money. Um, Eric Myers says, Jack, I hear what the New York guy is saying. Hard to make a decision to detether from a high-income job, knowing that happiness isn't guaranteed on the other end. That's a big thing, too. Like, a lot of people say move, but there are people who have left high-paying jobs, moved out to the country, and went, this sucks. I don't like chickens. Chickens suck. I don't like gardening. Gardening sucks. Like all the things they thought they would like. I think edging into something and determining if the lifestyle is right for you uh, is a good way to go. Um, Wayne says, anyone have any advice on how to counter jug loans created by Black Walnut? My garden is always weak, and I just learned jug loan from Black Walnuts. Uh, they're down already. Uh, yeah, um, if you can't move then what you probably want to do, uh, Wayne, I'm assuming that it's not so close that the black walnuts are dropping leaves in the garden. If that's the case, you're going to have to build new garden somewhere else. You're just, you're going to have problems. What you can do is look up plants, specifically perennials, that are resistant to black walnut, to jug loan. So that's Black walnut, that's English walnut, that's pecan, etc. Put in a swale or a contour bed or something like that and plant that as a buffer between the, the flow off of where this black walnut is. So those plants will actually create a bioremediation buffer for you. So what I've done is like where I have pecans, I have, and this is tree-based systems, but I have like persimmon, American persimmon, by the way, and, and, and some other plants that mulberry, um, these are plants that they just don't care about juglone. So it's preventing the runoff and then bioremediating with plants that can make use of that material and not be adversely affected by it. But if it's dropping leaf in the garden, it gotta go, Bo. It gotta go. I'm sorry that you put your time and effort there. You then have, you have two choices. Kill the tree or move the garden. And I hate cutting down, especially a long-term, high-value timber tree like a black walnut. But those are your choices at that point. Move the garden or, or remove the tree. Anyway, guys, I hope you guys enjoyed uh, today's episode. I, I enjoyed doing it. And I will be back with you guys a couple weeks from now. I have some really cool rewinds coming next week. So if you usually skip the rewinds, don't. Um, it's uh, it's going to be great. And if you're going to be in Tennessee, I'll see you this next coming weekend. And uh, we're also going to be posting things on social and all because once we're done at Nicole and John's, we are going to Gatlinburg. We're going to be doing a bunch of hiking and maybe there'll be some short videos of my wife drunk on moonshine. Who knows? Uh, definitely check us out while we're gone and we will catch you later. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. 
dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. 